Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. I chose a story by Stephen King, a short story. Believe it or not, he can write short. What? Yeah, I know. Oh my God. This appeared in the Atlantic in 2011. It's called Herman Woke is Still Alive. Shrek is over and all the kids are asleep, even Eddie. Rosalind's head is once more on Eddie's shoulder. She's snoring like an old woman. She has red marks on her arms because sometimes she can't stop scratching herself. Jasmine screws the cap on the bottle of Allen's and drops it back into the baby seat in the footwell. In a low voice, she says, When I was five, I believed in unicorns. So did I, Brenda says. She looks at Jasmine. I wonder how fast this thing goes. Jasmine looks at the road ahead. They flash past a blue sign that reads rest area one mile. She sees no traffic northbound. Both lanes are entirely theirs. Let's find out, Jasmine says. The numbers on the speedometer rise from 80 to 85, then 87. There's still some room left between the accelerator pedal and the floor. All the kids are sleeping. Here's the rest area coming up fast. Brenda sees only one car in the parking lot. It looks like a fancy one, a Lincoln or maybe a Cadillac. I could have rented one of those, she thinks. I had enough money, but too many kids. Couldn't fit them all in. Story of her life, really. She looks away from the road. She looks at her old friend from high school who ended up living just one town away. Jasmine is looking back at her. The van, now doing almost 100 miles an hour, begins to drift. Jasmine gives a small nod and then lifts Dee, cradling the baby against her big breasts. Dee's still got her comfort finger in her mouth. Brenda nods back. Then she pushes down harder with her foot, trying to find the van's carpeted floor. It's there, and she lays the accelerator pedal softly against it. What? So I picked this because we talk all the time about Stephen King and his book on writing and tips like that. And for the podcast, I was like, I'll find a short story that he's written. I know he's written some. I know that's what he did early on. I know he has novellas too, but this was one I hadn't read. I didn't even read it before I sent it to you, John, which is normally what I do, but I was even more confident knowing it was Stephen King that I would have something to say about it. (laughs) So I sent it on over. He's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's a reliable guy, I think, by this point. So did you like it? Oh, yeah. I really did like this one a lot. It's it's interesting to see the differences between like, I don't know how to put it, but like standard New Yorker pieces versus like someone like Stephen King who writes a story. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So yeah, it's really interesting and it was enjoyable and it moved and it was great to, to get into and it was easy to read, but still, it still yeah, had a lot sure. going on in it. Oh yeah. So to kind of summarize, he very quickly throws you into a story where these two high school friends who are in similar boats, they both sound like single moms with a lot of kids and not a lot of money. One of them wins the lotto and says, let's rent a car and drive to see my parents and beg them for more money. And their friend's like, all right, sure. I got to take the kids out of school, but they do it. They create in this van and the way it's told it's like really close third person so you're getting all the interior thoughts of like the driver of the van who has all these financial problems and she's thinking to herself i don't really know if what we're doing is going to solve anything i don't really know why i'm doing it but i'm so stuck and then what's cool about this story is how he breaks it into like the sections the numbered sections so we start with these two girls in the car and then we switch to a couple at a rest stop that are traveling along the same stretch of road to a poetry conference where they're both going to read, which you couldn't have two more different foils for these women we've been introduced to. And then it switches back to the woman in the car, back to the couple at the rest stop, back to the woman in the car, and then it ends with the couple at the rest stop. And uh, if you know anything about Stephen King, 
you know it probably doesn't end well (laughs) (laughs) or that you're reading something that has something horrific coming even if his stuff has warm fuzzy endings you're waiting the whole time for the monster and in a story like this there's no monster so you're waiting for the tragedy at least that's what i've been primed to expect between his books and movies and all of his like really recent stuff that's like on things like Netflix that they're just kind of churning out. If it's not overt like Christine, the car, then it's something more psychological. So he's always trying to spook you. And here it ends it when they drive really, really fast and they all die. And we're kind of made to believe that it was probably intentional, at least on the part of the driver. We know that she's speeding, but she kind of like careens off the road We don't get to be in her perspective when it happens, but there's cases of this happening where families drive their entire families off the road. It's effective. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was intentional because there's a line. It was something like uh, they started to drift out of the lane and then she looked over at her passenger and she nodded. And it was like, I know what you're about to do. I'm in. And then she's like, all right, let's see how fast this thing can go. And that was that. (sighs) terrible so Stephen King likes to do that like he doesn't want you to sleep at night (laughs) that's right (laughs) so for one reason or another he achieves that so I think Stephen King is really good at coming up with a concept and then he's like a workhorse. So he'll execute it. He'll figure out a way to execute it. Yeah. But he's one of those guys that I, I don't hate people like Stephen King, but I don't think stories are all about plot, but his are known for their plot. Like you remember stories because of what's happening in them and who it's happening to. You don't necessarily remember his writing or even like lines of dialogue unless it's been immortalized in film, but you remember all the concepts you can name everything he's done and it's because all of these stories are so vivid for you not everyone can do this i think some people try really hard to be stephen king when they try to come up with something really spooky or really complex this is a story that he probably came up with all at once you know and i don't think he has to try really hard this is a guy that when he talks about writing in his book just talks about how he always had these ideas yeah so who knows maybe it was a story that came to him about people that commit suicide this way he's also known for not having good endings right and he talks about his his um uh the way he writes is he comes up with a scenario or a situation like for a novel he'll come up with a scenario situation that has characters and then he'll dive into that and see where it goes and he just kind of follows it out and then he stumbles upon an ending at some point where i think like something like this is a short story it almost i can't see how he couldn't have envisioned this entire thing immediately right this was one idea and then he executed that one idea it's not like i'm going to figure this out and see where it goes it's like the beginning and the end are implicit in the idea yeah right it'd be too much work to come up with a good way to use this but you're right like it would all just hit you all at once so I get I get what you're saying about like his endings not being satisfying either. And I think that's why I would caution people who are trying to come up with what they think is like a great plot because when people come up with what they think is like a great concept, that's usually all it is. It's not a great story. It's a great concept. It's like, yeah. what if they were vampires, but they drank just the plasma? Oh, cool. Well, I haven't read that yet, but so what? What happens next? And then you get people like Stephen King, or I always use J.K. Rowling, but it's just because I've read stuff about her, where she talks about how she got the idea for Harry Potter and it hit her like a ton of bricks and it was, she started writing it down on a cocktail napkin. I don't think her idea when she says that was a boy wizard. I think her idea was a boy wizard who lives and he's the final Horcrux, right? Yeah. Like that was the idea. She couldn't tell us that when she was doing interviews, right? Give it all away 10 years early. But that's right. I think that's what she means. 
means is I conceived of the entirety of it. You shouldn't hope to come up with like all of the reason to write the great concept. You shouldn't have to come up, try too hard. Anyway, so Stephen King, yeah, maybe he tapers out, but I think he has no shortage of these kinds of concepts. This is one of those ones where I think the average person could probably come up with it, right? We could look at something horrific that happens in the news and say, what drives a person to do something like that? And then we could envision the characters in that scenario really easily and probably execute it. And if you wanted to write in the vein of Stephen King, you wouldn't tell us outright that it was horror. You wouldn't tell the the reader that something terrible is going to happen. You would let them discover like this other couple in the story, this like have this sickening realization what they're witnessing. And that's the storytelling in it, right? That elevates it from concept to story. What I liked about how he did this one, though, in particular, aside from the fact that it wasn't, you know, some monster he invented, I liked that it was just normal people. I really liked that it was numbered sections and that we were switching between perspectives because I think what that does automatically when you see a Roman numeral like that or a number or a letter or an offset and a bolded title, you immediately start reading for the next section. So we talk all the time about how novels that read quickly have short chapters. That's no mistake. It's intentional. Every chapter ends on a cliffhanger. You want to read the next one. So when you see a short story that's already short and then you see it broken up, you're reading for the next bullet point. You can probably see it on the page and that's not cheating. That's good. Like that means that this person is reading, 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 pause. And now I know I've been signaled that we're either going to switch perspectives or you know, now you're going to get a different section. And then you just kind of read to the next section. It kind of propels you. So I, I always love stories like that, that set me on that track. And then with a story like this, and you know, it's Stephen King, all these things are going in my mind at the same time. And I'm like, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. But now I'm realizing I'm not going to know until the end. So I'm like, kind of rushing, right? I know that there's going to be this climax. <laughs> And it's going to be at the end. It's Stephen King. It's not a New Yorker story where, you know, we missed it in the second act. And now we're going to ruminate on it for the next 300 words or, you know, 2000 words, whatever it is. It's Stephen King. There's a climax. And that's why he's got shit endings. Because then it's like, and everyone lived happily ever after because the clown was definitely dead this time. Those Roman numeral thing that you're talking about. I was thinking about those because a lot of these, the bolded titles that come after the Roman numerals, read like the first line that would come, like if you had the Roman numeral centered and then paragraph, the title is almost like it's the first line. That, that hit me specifically with, I think it's... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Four, or like number three, sitting behind the wheel of the Chevy van, Brenda feels like she's in the cockpit of a jet fighter. That's just a sentence. That could be like the beginning of the, the piece. And then the next one is uh, number four. You first, Pauline says. It's just a line of dialogue, and that's not a title. That's just the first line of what the thing is. Yeah. But this made me think of, we talked about the Roman numeral thing for the Faulkner story, Rose for Emily. And there was one in which it was, it happened right in the middle of a scene, right? Where we're going through the scene. I think it was when the town came to the house and said, we're going to take your, you have to pay your taxes. She's like, no, I don't do that. And then there was a Roman numeral. And then it continued with, she wound up not paying the taxes, something like that. I can't remember exactly. But we talked about how that kind of interrupted the the flow of the thing but i was thinking about that in reference with these and a lot of times when you break a scene like that in the middle of action you've 
established like an emotional ending to something and then you break it and the next thing starts a new emotional act right this is not that obviously but it just made me think of roman numerals and the way you break up stories a little differently when i was contemplating them did that also happen in the one story that you picked one of your first stories about the blue aliens oh those were a little different that was um when they came to us uh, w ransky those headings were almost like prompts it was uh, i remember we yeah. talked about one the, the aliens presented a moral challenge or a moral dilemma. Yes. And so the, the following couple of paragraphs after that heading were, what is the moral dilemma? And it's like, how did that moral dilemma come about? And then the next one would be, it would follow from it, but it would, it would be like a new kind of prompt for what came next. It wasn't the same as this, where it's like the first line. It felt more encompassing than that. Right. But yeah, that's another cool way to do it. Yeah. I remember now that you say that, that those headlines almost read like notes the author is giving themselves. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is what's going to happen in this section. It's like oh, the well, outline of the story. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I like the way it kind of like moves you along. I think I've done it before in stories that I've had to write where I had like a word count and it was longer than I was used to to writing. I'm thinking about like one that I wrote in college and one of the ways I had to break it up for myself was to break it up into scenes and to break it up in a similar way where I was writing this section and I knew what was going to happen before and after it, but I had to just focus on this one. So you can almost write it that way too. Like I, you know, Stephen King probably, like we said, doesn't have to think too hard about how he's doing it. But I think if you want to achieve a structure like this you can just write on your page five things and you can do the prompts like our blue alien writer and say this is what i'm going to do in this section this is how i'm going to start it and this is what i'm going to hit at the end this is the point of this section and then you hit those points and then you'll be surprised first of all how easy it is to tackle when you think about it that way and then how well it works for the reader when you don't remove that outline, when you leave the Roman numerals in, that's fine. They're allowed to see how you made it. That's right. It helps you read it, I think. It lends something to it. It's the same reason novels have chapters. We're allowed to like take a breather. We have to, we cannot read this book all at once. We have to dog ear a page. So break it up and be really intentional about that section. Yeah. It also works too in a story like this where you are switching perspectives. Well, yeah, this story is pretty um, straightforward with what it's happening with each yeah. of those breaks. Yeah. Yeah. You can anticipate that we're switching back and forth. It's like the cockroach story that I shared where that's broken up too in sections, but, no, but I don't it's think different. they're sections. They were just paragraphs. They're just paragraphs. Are you sure there's not like some capitalization or something? Yeah. It was like the first story goes like this. Something like um, in the first story, blah, blah, blah happened. The second story what starts is, is uh, the fifth story by Clarice Lispector. God, you're so good. I'm not going to be able to find the original <sighs> drats. Anyway, I'm a big fan of these kinds of things. I think jumping ahead, this is my takeaway, is to cheat the reader into looking at your story and thinking, I can do that. I can handle that. I can read a section at a time. This looks easy. That's, That's right. how I feel when I see stories like this. I'm like, oh, totally manageable. When I read this, I read the first section, then I set it down for a little while. And then I read the second section and I set it down for a little while. Intentionally or were you being like distracted? Well, I have kids, so sometimes it's hard to read a long yeah, thing okay. all at once. <laughs> I don't know if you so, like to know. Okay. So I had to break it up and it made it easier to break up in that way. There right. are times when I have to just set it down in the middle of a paragraph and there's nothing yeah, I can do about that. Yeah, and then reread and yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so I like the little breaks for that reason. 
there's actually a story I'm working on now where I deliberately am not breaking. And I don't know why I'm not breaking. <laughs> like, I don't know if there's a good reason for it, but I feel like I shouldn't. So <laughs> we'll see how that turns out. Yeah. Well, if you did have a reason, I imagine it'd be something like the effect of, ha- of not having a break tells you like this is still going or that we're still spinning towards something. We haven't, we're not done with our point and this is going to be a long haul in a way. This is yes. going to be difficult for both of us. It's part <laughs> of the emotion of it. I yeah. think and without being specific about the story, there's a particular feeling that that achieves yeah. because you don't get that hiatus in between the end of a scene and six weeks later, you just, right. you have to jump into six weeks later because the character is still in the same mental space. Yeah. It's, I hate comparing anything to movies, but I, it's just, there's just good examples. I'm not comparing it because it's a movie. It's just a good example. But anyway, when they do this in every like romantic comedy where they have the montage. Oh yeah. That achieves something. The fact that these are quick and that the music kicks in and you know that we're not paying attention. We're not in it for the long haul. This is going to last the length of that song. And we're going to learn that time has passed the same way that like when that next scene starts and there's no music and maybe they're sitting in a restaurant that you can anticipate that it's going to be longer and i think it's through signaling to the reader or the viewer that you're doing these things and making these switches but also like once they're in it the length kind of like you said adds to the mood if i know i gotta sit down now and think this is a what do they call it a pensive scene where the characters are going to have a difficult conversation yeah it sets up expectations which, which i think is a good thing i don't think it's like spoon feeding anything i don't like stephen king i know gets like criticized probably a lot because he's popular just for that yeah Yeah. as if that's a bad thing right as if i mean i've had arguments with people about like top 40 music all the time like just because everyone likes it doesn't mean it's bad it probably means there's There's something good about it there's a reason so i don't know why we shit on stuff like this i get why we shit on people like stephen king it's because like me we're jealous that's right but we can admit (laughs) that so it's more just like he's doing it right he's obviously a good writer we're reading everything he writes so Yeah. yeah that's why i wanted to read something short of his too oh absolutely one of the things um, that he's so good at in all of the work he does, I mean, we, we talk about plot with him, but he is really good at just quickly building a character. Yes. Of like, you you see this person, he gives a couple of lines. It's not even like, let me give you a character description. It's just like, as the scene no. begins to unfurl, you're like, oh, I know this person because he picks the perfect little details to focus on and the perfect little actions of what the character is doing or thinking. And you get that character so quick. Yeah. One thing he does in this story which is interesting is the uh, even the language in each section changes like when you're with the poets it's a different kind of language than when you're with these two yes. uh, women like the two women there's a line in there where they could go to uh, Mickey D's or Booger King and it's <laughs> like it's like oh yeah I haven't read Stephen King in a while I forgot he sometimes you know he's a little crass error with some of that but what the poets he's using like these larger words and these yes. different like sentence structures and with the two women it's much more um vernacular yeah i want to read this first paragraph because like you said he's really good at building these characters quickly i like when i started reading this i was almost like annoyed how quickly the character is built because i couldn't tell i couldn't tell if i was operating like on stereotypes that he had triggered somehow in my mind you know and i was filling in the blanks or if he had actually done it that well i was like what's happening here i already know exactly who this is like it shouldn't happen that fast it's a little bit of both i think yeah this is how it starts it's, this is the first roman numeral it says brenda hits pick four for twenty seven hundred dollars and resists her first impulse and then this is the actual paragraph instead of going out for a bottle of orange driver to celebrate with 
She pays off the MasterCard, which has been maxed like forever, then calls Hertz and asks a question, then calls her friend Jasmine, who lives in North Berwick, and tells her about the pick four. Jasmine screams and says, girl, you're rich. Like, I already knew everything. I was like, she's down on her luck. She's poor. But her impulse is to buy what I'm assuming is some kind of booze, right? I'm making all these decisions in my mind. And then even how the first line of dialogue we get is, girl, you're rich. $2,700, you know? And girl, like all these things in my head, I'm like, I know where these people are in life, you know? And like you said, it's not physical descriptions like that. It's not like, let me tell you about this character. It's just, here's the situation. And like we talk about all the time, here are the details and decisions that bring this character to life. How quickly do you do it then to make that girl make a decision in the first paragraph where she's like, she hits the lottery and she wants to do this, but instead she does that. It's like, oh my God, you did it immediately. I think like we never do that. Like every novel, especially that you read, starts with these long descriptions of physical place and what the character looks like and then you know you lose steam because you think that you've done the work of developing the character well Stephen King doesn't want you to feel like he lost steam so he just gets it over with (laughs) yeah I'm curious I I didn't actually look for this but what you said makes me wonder if there is a real description of Brenda in here there's descriptions of the poets. They talk about their hair and stuff, but that just comes up as part of the action. In the one section that I read, like it mentions like she clutches her child to her big breasts, which is like the well, the one thing he says about the one girl. So it's like, I don't know if we're supposed to take that she's overweight or if Stephen King's just fascinated by women and their bodies. He did mention the weight in another section. I remember okay. now. I mean, like that's what I mean when I say that I'm filling in blanks. I'm thinking to myself, like, who are these people if they're eating fast food and like they've got 30 kids, you know, like they probably got a couple pounds on him but he did all of that without telling me yeah god damn it (laughs) that's right well is there anything else you want to say about this one or do you want to jump to a takeaway yeah we could go to takeaways well to completely repeat myself i just love stories that are broken up visually especially in smaller sections like this because of what it does for my brain and because once you're reading it and you've resigned yourself to reading it in its entirety no matter how long it was or whether or not it had the roman numerals in the first place they still achieve something which is like i said to tell you what to expect to tell you when you know that there's going to be some kind of a switch whether it's perspective or whether you stay within that character maybe it's a shift in time or place whatever it is it just moves stories along so quickly and it helps you as the writer take a different approach to how you write it helps you envision these things as separate chunks like i said my example the one story i had to write that was super long i broke it up into scenes and i was like okay i'm gonna make this happen and then this happen and then this happen and i can write them out of order now because i've envisioned how they fall together i don't do that for every novel or for every story that i write though and i probably should because it makes everything so much easier Sometimes, you know, when you just start writing, you think you have a great idea and then you run out of steam because you don't know how to get from A to D. You haven't thought about B and C. Well, think about it beforehand and go ahead and break it up. It doesn't have to be this 9,000 word story that doesn't take a breath. It can acknowledge its own storytelling elements, right? It doesn't have to be this perfect sweeping thing. It can stop and say, now I got to do this so that this makes sense so that we can get here. That's what Stephen King's doing. 
doing. Yeah, that's good. I think when I write stories, I don't necessarily work from an outline, but I do have like a bullet list. And it's not yeah. always like this is going to happen X, Y, Z in this order. Right. The most recent story I was working on, I just at the bottom of the document, I had like a list of things that I knew should appear, maybe probably in there somewhere. And um, every time I got to a place where like a thing was ending, I'd glance at that list and see what, what do I feel like needs to come next and just pull oh, it out. That's good. So there's like, there's many ways to approach it, but having that list, writing it down and like getting it in some way that you can utilize it, it's a good idea. A list is really good too, because, you know, if it's a list of things that don't have to happen in a particular order, even if it's like, I have all this backstory on this character, but I want to avoid an info dump. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe then it's like, okay, now as he's bleeding from this mortal wound, he'll reflect on his childhood trauma, which I've failed to mention to this point. Yeah. It doesn't come up yet. Yeah. I don't know why I forgot. And you can look at your list and just kind of insert it. Yeah. It was funny is after I wrote two thirds of the draft, I went back and rearranged pieces anyway. Yeah, exactly. Well, as long as it's all on there and you see how to insert it, then you can rearrange it later. Yeah. So my takeaway is my takeaway is just the thing about character, looking at this story about how to introduce a character and portray a character and make the character real as quickly as possible. It's so well done, as we talked about, that that is uh, something to learn from. And we talked about, you know, it comes from the details. It comes from one of the first things that we talked about in several episodes when we first started this podcast was significant details. And it always comes back to that. Significant details aren't just like what color is her hair, what, you know, how tall is she? It's what does she do? What are her impulses and what are her actions? How does she behave? How does she react to things? That is what makes her a character. Well, I think too, like it bears mentioning that if you think of any one of Stephen King's works, all of the characters are starkly unique from each other in his overall work. Like if you think, for example, of it, all the kids in that ragtag group all have their own thing. They're all hugely different. So I think when we talk about how good he is at characterizing someone, like you're doing a lot of work for him too when you think how different his characters are on the page. Like in this example, we're like, wow, these poets, they're poets. And <laughs> these people, right. they're poor, you know? And we're thinking to ourselves, wow, they're they're so different. And we're kind of informing the development too. Like he did it quickly and he did it well, but there's something to be said for inserting people that are very, very different, making characters like unique and like yeah. aggressively unique. I think that's that's absolutely right. That because that because then you can make contrasts and stuff. You can see how they're different. Yeah. Even the two poets by the end become two different people because of the way they they respond to one another and respond to the situation. Yeah, right. I, I think part of this is is back to the show tell thing where uh, something you said made me think of this. Where the way I think of show and tell is you tell everything, but what is shown is how the reader interprets what you've told them. You tell them these things that a character does, and then the reader interprets that in order to understand who the character is. Is. And I think the reader's doing a lot of the work because they're doing the interpretation of what's on the page in order to understand a complex human being that's not, you know, these are just words on a page. They're not a complex human being, but you interpret right. what is being told to you as if it's showing you a person. And then you're filling in those blanks by being like, okay, so those are their motivations. That's what drives them. Right. That's what makes them interesting. That's what makes them different from other people. That's what makes them tick. Even if you have a character with red hair, <laughs> Like he he does that all the time. 
you fill in so many blanks. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, describing someone with red hair, describing someone as being blonde. I mean, that's like cultural things yeah. can, can carry a lot of... Uh, or like the jock. There's always a jock. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And some of it's stereotypes, but yeah. You complicate the stereotype by giving them things that don't quite line up with what you would expect of the stereotype. And that's that's what makes right. the details significant is because right. they help sh- mold it and shape it. Cool. Well, thanks, Stephen (laughs) King, giving us more to talk about here. All right. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.